If I've not had the joy to meet you yet, my name is Michael. I'm the lead pastor here at the Village Church. Would you open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 4? 1 Peter chapter 4. Now, in my life, I have predetermined my responses should a number of specific heated circumstances come up. Uh, I would call these protocols. I have a a set number of protocols in my life, and I want to share with you a few of them. I have protocols for (laughs) when I am hit on. (laughs) Rare, but yes, happened one time in (laughs) 20 years of ministry. Let me tell you my protocol. Uh, My protocol is simple. Uh, Step number one, leave, right? Logic, right? That's good. Step number two, Tell my wife, amen? (laughs) Step number three, tell our elders. Like, that's the beginning. That's my protocol. Leave, tell my wife, tell our elders. All right. Um, I have a protocol for when I am personally confronted on sin. It goes like this. Listen very carefully. Empathize. Number two, document everything that I can that was said. And then number three, leave and immediately tell someone who has authority over me in my life. That's it. Listen, document, tell somebody who has authority in my life. If I'm accused of disqualifying sin as an elder, let me tell you my protocol. Number one, tell the whole elder team. Number two, recuse myself. Number three, offer my resignation. And number four, submit to the process. Done. No questions asked. Like these are decisions that we, I have made beforehand because when you're in these heated situations, are you clear-headed? No. Am I clear-headed? Not at all. We make protocols for events or circumstances that are emotional and or threatening. Emotional and or threatening. So for example, um, you are on fire, stop, drop, and roll. roll. You're in a school and there's an active shooter situation, run, hide, and fight. Yes. Now, in the active shooter protocol, let's just be really crystal clear for a moment. Um, Do they want you to fight, then run? No, it's run. Hide if you can, but if you're not able to do that, then you go fight. Um, Our friends uh, out west probably won't totally understand this, but um, if there's a tornado, you go in the basement. Good job. If we make protocols for our physical body and our physical lives, if we're smart enough to do that, how much more should we have protocols for spiritual threats and danger. So 1 Peter chapter 4, again, open up your Bibles there. In 1 Peter chapter 4, he's going to identify three very specific spiritual threats. That, I want you to hear me, when you get near or around these experiences, you and I need to have protocols that we have predetermined how we're going to respond because these three things, we get all fuzzy-headed, we get all confused, we're not our best selves, so we predetermine protocols, responses before we get into them. And so if you remember chapter four, verse one, uh, Chris preached on last week, uh, Peter said this, arm yourselves, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Now, do you have to arm yourselves when there's no threat? No, you arm yourself because there is an inevitable threat. So he's going to talk about three spiritual threats. Last week we saw the first one, and that was suffering. When you're in the middle of suffering, are you clear-headed? The answer is 
No, not at all. Uh, And what happens in the middle of suffering is we become delusional in our thinking. Uh, Delusional is when you start believing or thinking things that are not in alignment with reality. So in the middle of suffering, here are some of the delusional thoughts that we're tempted to have. One of them is God is upset with me. Another is that God is not listening to me. Another is that God isn't with me. Another is that God is pushing me away. Like we in the middle of suffering have all of these delusional thoughts. So uh, before we even get to suffering, when we see it coming, when we find ourselves in it, we have a set of protocols, uh, ways of thinking that we, we, we do differently. Now the second and third um, threat we're going to talk about this morning. Here's the second threat. Intoxication. Uh, And I think as we get into this, you're going to understand why this is actually such a big deal to Peter and to his audience. Intoxication is an invitation to numb out the pain of this life and to miss what God is actually doing. It's this invitation that the flesh and the culture put before you to say, you know what, like you don't have to feel or face any of this at all. And in the process of doing this, we completely miss what God is doing. Uh, The third threat is sexual immorality. And this is the invitation to indulge our never-satisfied flesh despite the cost to our soul. Now, if I were to, like, have everybody raise your hands, don't do that. By the way, this is going to be what's called rhetorical, which means you don't answer. If I were going to tell you, has suffering tripped you up spiritually and led you down a delusional way of thinking, even if just for a day or two, the vast majority of you in this room would be able to say yes, because life is hard I've been tripped up by that. I was not prepared. I was not armed. I was not ready to deal with that. Uh, If I were to ask most of you, have you struggled with or been around and been tempted to intoxication through various substances to numb out the pain and the reality of your life and what's all around us? The vast majority of you in this room would raise your hand and say, yes, I have engaged. If I were to ask all of you and you were to be bluntly honest, how many of you have been intoxicated in the last year? And I don't mean just had a little something. I mean, numbed yourself out to the point where you are not sober any longer, uh, Probably more than half of you in this room would raise your hand to say, in the last year, I have been mentally intoxicated as a means of actually running away from life and what's really before me. Um, Sexual immorality. Uh, If we were to raise our hands and say, how many of you have been tempted towards sexual immorality in the last year? Almost every one of you would raise your hands. I mean, these are three threats that are constantly coming after us, and they're lures enticing us. And what Peter's going to do is he's going to go directly after these things in a way that I think is going to be really, really helpful for us. Uh, look what happens in verse 3. Here's what he says. For the time that is past suffices. You've had more than enough time, by the way. For doing what the Gentiles, that's his theological way of saying non-Christians, for doing what the Gentiles or the non-Christians want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Is Peter afraid to address any subject? Not at all. I want to focus your attention on this last phrase, lawless idolatry, because I think it really actually wonderfully summarizes all of it. If you were living in this time, you were a Roman, uh, most of the Romans were engaged in temple worship to some degree or another. And as we've talked about in the book of First Peter, um, what you find in these contexts is that the priests and priestesses um, would actually offer you to be intoxicated and to sexually indulge so that you could be closer to the gods. It was actually an act of worship. And so lawless idolatry literally
literally in the practice of their idolatry, there were no substance or sexual rules whatsoever. It was literally lawless idolatry. And lawless idolatry promoted two very specific things, particularly in the temple system that most of these people pre-Jesus would be semi-familiar with. Number one, they promoted intoxication through substance abuse. It wasn't just alcohol. They had various other drugs. They would use these things to, again, help them grow closer to the gods. But number two, they promoted sexual immorality. And I want you to just process this through cult prostitution, pedophilia, orgies, homosexuality, and more. So their world was obviously very, very different than ours. Um, Now, you can find this stuff in our world, but these issues were much more on the surface than they were hidden. In fact, most of of what I just told you about is semi-illegal in the United States. Now, I want to just take a moment. Can we just back off this for a moment? Because inevitably, there are people from all different types of backgrounds in the room, and I want to make sure we're kind of crystal clear on a couple major things. Number one, um, when we talk about alcohol in the Bible, alcohol is not considered a good thing or a bad thing. It's considered a neutral thing. And Jesus is apparently not afraid of the subject matter. His first major miracle was making alcohol for a wedding. Peter tells Timothy to take a little bit for his stomach issues. Clearly the issue itself isn't the neutral thing of alcohol. Uh, It is a neutral thing that can be used for good or for evil. And so you have to understand Peter's not a hyper-fundamentalist of the 21st century vibe, if you will, okay? Um, That's not his issue. His issue is not with substances per say, but with intoxication, where we cease to become sober-minded. Uh, I want to compare this with sexuality. Sexuality is not a neutral thing or a bad thing. It is a good thing. It is a God-designed thing. It is a God-infused uh, thing, a God-sanctioned thing. It's a very good thing. And you're actually going to notice in, in the Bible that when good things are taken by sinners and used to do bad things, Uh, the vocabulary moves from just like sin bad to perversion and abomination. The vocabulary gets much more intense when good things are taken and used for sinful things rather than neutral things. And so God gets very, very, very serious about any good thing that is perverted and used for bad things. So for example, God made marriage. It's a good thing. And if you want to see God get really emotional in the New Testament, okay, around sexuality and marriage and the marriage covenant, it's a very emotional subject matter for God. Why? Because it is a good thing, not just a neutral thing. And whenever good things are perverted by sin, it's an abomination. It's a much more frustrating, negative thing. Now, here's the deal. When you, as a believer, are in, near, or around the temptation for intoxication or sexual immorality, you need to stop and activate your protocols, You need to pull out your weapon, which is your protocols. Arm your way with this way of thinking. Arm your mind with this way of thinking. And what I want to do is help you understand what these protocols are. So we're going to deal with actually two sets of protocols this morning. Uh, The first set of protocols is going to be for when you're enticed by the world. That'll be the first half of the sermon. The second half of the sermon is going to be protocols for when you are hurting in a church. Not hurt by a church, hurting in a church, and I think you're going to watch as this text unfolds why these are very relevant to Peter's audience and then to each of us. So protocol number one, when I'm enticed by the world, verses four to six is going to set the context. When we get to verse seven, that's where I'm going to actually give you Peter's 
protocols, his stop, drop, and roll, if you will, um, for these circumstances. Look at verse four with me, context. With respect to this, they, non-Christians, are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. Now, he's using language to throw you back to the Genesis flood account where the world was wicked bad. I mean, every thought of their heart was only evil continually. That's what Genesis 6 says. So the idea here is that there are very few righteous people The world isn't just doing bad things, but they're proud of the evil things they're doing. They're doing them publicly. They're doing them loudly in an unashamed kind of way. And he says this, in the same flood of debauchery, when you don't join them, their response is this. They malign you. Let's just take a moment and let's describe the circumstances that Peter is describing here. Here's number one. Uh, You are invited by a non-Christian to some context where there is either going to be the temptation for sexual immorality or intoxication, okay? Now, here's what happens uh, in this verse. This is what it's describing. The people who are inviting you are really good-intentioned. They probably don't have any, like, negative um, uh, uh, agenda with you. And so they are now realizing you are not going to participate with them, that you're not going to do this. Now, what is their reaction? Are they thrilled with this? No, in fact, probably what we see most often is that when Christians refuse to participate, most often the response of the interpretation is that they interpret it as you being judgmental. Even if you're not being judgmental, that's the interpretation. Uh, Nobody likes to feel or be judged in any way, shape, or form. And so if they feel judged, um, they all of a sudden now they're like, they're frustrated. And they're frustrated to the point where here's their response maligning. Now, whether or not that's to your face or behind your back, we actually don't really know. Now, he's describing a circumstance, by the way, that was semi-normal for these Christians. They would be invited to participate in something that was considered culturally, socially normal or good. The Christians would not engage or not participate. The non-Christians would respond to this by, by feeling upset and frustrated probably at their perceived judgmentalism, and then they would respond by maligning them, slandering them, gossiping about them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, this was like their, this was normal. And let me just tell you, like, this was kind of my normal all the way through, halfway through college. Like, this was just normal. And for a lot of you guys, so like, like, I'll be honest, people don't really invite me to these parties anymore. They hear that I'm a pastor. They have a a hunch that I'm not going to go, like, do this kind of stuff. But most of you in this room, you don't work for a church, and you're not pastors, and you're going to be and are probably invited to engage in some of these contexts on a semi-regular basis. Like, this isn't like a weird scenario. This is a normal scenario if you're a believer and you live in the world. If you have non-Christian neighbors. If you have non-Christian employees at work. If you have non-Christian friends at school. Like, this is actually a pretty normal experience for Christians. Verse 5 goes on and says this. But they... They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Um, Let's just take a little um, sidecar here discussion. Is it okay ever for Christians to judge non-Christians? And by judge, I mean to look down on them with a condescending attitude. The answer is no, right? Now, do you ever want to? The answer is 
<laughs> yes, but is it <laughs> guilty? Yeah, thank you for Jesus. Uh, but is it ever appropriate? And the answer, of course, is no, because that's actually not our job. That is God's job to be the one to condemn those who will not repent of their sin through faith in Jesus. I want to show you 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, because for some of you, this is actually a brand new concept and way of thinking. I want to make sure we're all on the same page. Paul now is writing to an incredibly sexually charged community with a lot of really immature believers who have not had their sexual uh, relationships, if you will, will, sanctified yet by Jesus. He writes to them, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And at this point, you're like, well, where do I go? Because everybody's sexually immoral. He said, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy, or the swindlers, or the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. In fact, like your job is to rub shoulders with the world, to be friends in a sense, in a, in a way where you have the ability to get to know people and to love them well and to serve them. Like the world is, does not need to be this big, scary place to you, right? Here's what he's, here's what he's saying. He goes on, he says uh, in verse um, 11, but now... I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, meaning they call themselves a Christian. And the idea here is of not just one-time struggle, but of a repeated, unrepentant, like no sorrow for sin kind of way. If he's a brother, if he's guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one, because the person who bears the name of Christ and then just lives in unrepentant sin, constantly not caring at all, is an embarrassment to Jesus, misrepresents him, tells lies to people about the gospel. It's just not a good thing. But then he says in verse 12, for what do I have to do with judging outsiders? And the answer is nothing. That's just not my job. In fact, here's what we do. Is it not those inside the church who you were to judge? But let's just be clear. There's even a protocol for how judgment happens within the body of Christ. There's an authority structure. We just don't go judging people with condemning wagging fingers. That's actually not the way it's designed to work. Let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 5. He says, But they, the Gentiles, the non-Christians, will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead. Isn't that a weird statement? That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. People have read these verses, by the way, and they don't have a clue what to do with them. Like, what does it mean where it says the gospel was preached to those who are even dead? Like, can you preach the gospel to a corpse? Like, is there any second chance after you die? Like, not, not at all. So what's he talking about here? Um, there are, are basic three interpretive options, and then you guys can duke it out which one you like the best. Um, one is when he refers to living and dead, he's actually referring to people who are actually physically alive or physically dead. I think that has a little bit of problem here because that would mean that he's preaching the gospel to people who are physically dead, and that's weird. Uh, another option is that he's referring to people who are spiritually alive and spiritually dead. I, I, that's, it is op, an option. It actually makes sense. Another option is that uh, the people who are dead, they were preached to while they're alive, but now they're dead. It doesn't even matter. At this point, here's what he's saying. The gospel has to be preached. Here's the context. You're being maligned. You're, you look weird and different. And somehow... This whole maligning experience is leading to a place where you have to talk about Jesus. And here's what he wants them to know. Like, there is incredible news for you. The word gospel, it means good news. 
I want you to imagine that there's this person and they are numbing out the pain of their miserable life through substances and intoxication on a regular basis. And they come to you and they say, hey, you want to join me? My life's terrible. Why don't you come with me? Now, here's the deal. You have really good news for this person. I do have incredible news. You know the hopelessness that you feel? The powerlessness over the substance that originally was just self-medication, but now it's begun to consume you and control you? You know all of that? Like, there is power. There is actually power to overcome this. There is forgiveness for all the terrible things you've done, all the relationships that have been broken because of your overindulgence in these things, the marriages lost, the relationships lost, the children disappointed, all the things, all the costs for this stuff. Like you've got really incredible news for every person who has given their life over to repeated intoxication and sexual immorality. And any, any correspondence that we have in the, in the context of this maligning somehow, in theory, should be able to culminate with the opportunity to share not news of condemnation to them, but news of hope, good news of power to forgive, to redeem, and to overcome. All right, let's get to the actual protocols. When I am enticed by the world, step number one, I know this is going to be like mind-numbing to you, but decide beforehand. Step number one, walk away. Did anybody's brain just explode? Mine just did. Verse seven, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled. You've heard me say this again a thousand times. Uh, The sin of so many people is that we try to resist sexual immorality and flee Satan. When in fact, the biblical mandate is just the opposite. You resist Satan and you flee sexual immorality. And so here's the, the biblical like, like protocol, step number one. When you are near it or in it, when it is coming for you, at you, your job is to pull a Joseph and to leave, skedaddle, get out. That's your job. Uh, why? Because there's something about sexual immorality that makes us dumb in the head, right? Like, you talk to any dude who is looking at pornography, they're not even thinking clearly in any way. Like, parts of their brain just shut down, like, you know, like, before you even get to it, you walk away. And if you find yourself in it, like, activate your protocols, pull out your weapon, here we go, we're going to fire. Protocol number one, step number one, walk away. Walk away. But what about my friends? It's going to be weird. It's going to be strange. It doesn't even just matter. Walk away. Walk away. The opposite of self-control is flesh control. There are going to be one of two things controlling your behavior. One is going to be your mind. The other is going to be your body. Let me put it on the screen so you can see it this way. Our body does not tell our mind what to do. Our mind tells our body what to do. Our body does not tell our mind what to do. Our mind tells our body what to do. In the world, they have one simple protocol. Do what feels right. Their body tells their mind what to do, and then their mind aimlessly follows. But in the church, the people of God, with the spirit of God, informed by the word of God, we rise above this. We, our mind that is being transformed by God's word, we have a set of protocols, and we tell our body what to do. We are not slaves to our body. So let's just be honest for a moment. Um, The more you indulge in a substance or sexual immorality, 
right? The weaker your mind becomes and the stronger the addiction or your body becomes, correct? So if you've been drinking for years and years and years and years, is it harder for you to overcome alcohol? The answer is yes. If you've been looking at pornography for years and years and years and years and years, it's going to be harder. But I want you to, want you to hear me and I want to put this in the screen so you can just see this. Even at its weakest, the resolved mind is 2x more powerful than the strongest fleshly impulse. Let me prove it to you. You have the ability to have self-control apart from the Spirit of God, let alone the power that he gives you with the Spirit of God. I'll prove this to you. You sit down with somebody who's addicted to pornography, and they say, I just can't stop. I just can't stop. I just can't stop. Let me tell you what the real problem is. They don't believe the consequences are great enough. Because if they did, they wouldn't. So if I went up to somebody and I said, I've got a gun to the head of everybody in your family, and the moment you look, every trigger is pulled, will you do it? No way. Magically, you have self-control. What's the difference? The cost is now great enough. Here's what I've learned with most people. They don't believe the cost is great enough, and they've given their body so much power and strength. But I want to tell you this, that even the believer... Now, I haven't done a study on this. This is just like, I wanted to put 10X, but I feel like that might be too much. I don't know. Like, there's no official, like, like I didn't take a poll of a bunch of people. But here's the point. The believer with the Spirit of God, your mind has an incredible ability to tell your body what to do. You may not be able to tell your body what to feel. That's a different story. But your body is a slave to your mind. Your mind informs your body, not the other way around. And unfortunately, we play victim. No, we are overcomers. We are not victims. We overcome by knowing who is in control. We are in control with our mind to tell our body what to do. I am not a slave to my body. Jesus freed me from that. My body is a slave to my mind. Step number two, protocol. Think clearly. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. When my passions are high, are my thoughts clear? We've said this. The answer is absolutely not. I remember my first um, party where I saw my friends get intoxicated. I was in seventh grade. I had been around stuff prior to that, but it was the first time that two of my good buddies really just got kind of wasted. And I sat there the whole night, and I watched them throw up. Now, when you're sober, like, I didn't have anything to drink at all. I mean, I sat there completely sober, just watching my buddies puke, watching them be totally sick, and then, because they're in seventh grade, their parents had to come get them, and then trying to watch them cover that up. That was just a whole night of, of interesting, and it was the first of many where I found myself around this stuff. Of course, I didn't have the protocols at the time to deal with it. Uh, I did know don't engage, because I couldn't get away with anything, but, um, but I watched these guys, and you know what I was really clear about? These guys' homes, home life stunk. Like, one of them was just miserable all the time, and he did all of these things just to escape real life. The other one just wanted to be liked. His home life was miserable. It gave him an escape, and these things stuck with him all the way out through high school and college. I was able to look clearly and just say, you know what? Like, I don't need to run. No one's life is easy, but I don't need to run. In fact, as a follower of Christ, like, God's called us to something very different, which is, yes, things are hard. We don't numb ourselves to the hard. We lean into the hard because God has stuff for us in the difficult. Think clearly. See reality. Play itself out. Their mourning is going to be terrible, and if they keep down this path, nothing good is going to happen to them. But the people of God, we just see things very differently. We see things very differently. Number three, remember the reward. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. This is, for Peter, 
not a new theme. In chapter three, verse 12, I want to show you this. Here's what he says. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. In Peter's mind, there is a dynamic relationship between God's willingness to answer your prayers and the decisions you make with regard to these issues. Think about this. So here's what he's doing. He's saying, here's what I know, believers. Here's what I know you want. I know you want the face of God turned toward you. And I know you want the ear of God bent toward you. I know you want the heart of God to be responsive to you. So here's the deal. These things are worldly things. Put them away. And here's the reward. You know, that desire that you want to know and feel that God is with you and hearing you, that's one of the rewards for living a righteous life. Now, some of you are like, I go to God all the time and he never answers my prayer, he doesn't hear me, I feel like he's not near me. Okay, like my kids get in trouble like the rest of yours and when my kid is in trouble, I put him in, let's say, a timeout in his bedroom and then he says, hey dad, can I have a candy bar? What's my answer going to be? No. And you're like, hey God, I'm going to like, I don't know, get intoxicated every weekend and indulge in sexual immorality. Oh, by the way, could you answer all my prayers over here, make my life great and give me this job? What's the answer going to be? No, why would he do that? You wouldn't even do that with your children. And yet we're expecting God to answer all of our prayers while we live up however we want. God disciplines us over here and then we want him to give us candy bars in the process. And here's what Peter's saying. Listen, husbands, he said this earlier. Like one of the reasons you want to be really kind to your wives, okay, is for the sake of your prayers. Because apparently God takes it very personally when husbands treat their wives like dirt. And he's like, my ears aren't towards those, to those men. You want, you, want, you want me to hear your prayer? Treat your wife the weaker vessel. I don't mean weaker mentally. He means weaker physically. Treat her well and protect her. You want the ear of the Lord to you? In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12, he says, like, here's what you do. Like, live righteously to the Lord. If you want his ear, this is how to do it. Peter's pretty serious about this. This is the third time he's brought up the reality of your prayer life connected to whether or not you live differently than the world. So the first set of protocols, let's do a little summary. When you're enticed in the world, step number one, walk away. Step number two, think clearly. And step number two, three, remember the reward. Remember the reward. Here's the second set of protocols. This is one for when you are hurting in the church. He's going to go in an interesting direction here, and I want you to just see what he does The context of this church experience is simple. Foreigners, foreign refugees are showing up on the doorsteps of these Christians. These foreigners are disillusioned. These refugees are hurt. They're coping with everything they've lost. Remember, they've lost most everything. They're trying to start over, but they have lost a ton and don't know how to do that. They're entire concept of normal has been taken away from them. Uh, They are in a new land, probably new language, new customs, new food, etc. They are, for all practical purposes, outsiders. Now here's here's what he says. This is going to apply to refugees, um, spiritual refugees, physical refugees, or it's going to apply to people who are just like the people in first century Turkey that he's writing to who grew up in these churches. This is going to apply to them as well. When you're hurting in the local church or there are people hurting in the local church, here's step number one. 
Lean into the local church. Look at verse eight. Here's what he says. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Here's my question. Peter, why this exhortation in light of all the turmoil you have two communities, a refugee community, and you have a, an established community in these cities in Turkey, and they're being forced together. Peter, why these words? Why this exhortation? Uh, stats are out. If you are married and your child dies, statistically, you are way more likely to get a divorce than had they not. In fact, lowest numbers are 16% higher. In fact, the, the numbers are actually like coming, I'm trying to be conservative with that, but they're a little bit higher than that. So here's, one, here's a huge threat. If you are married and one of your children dies, the chances of you and your spouse divorcing go up radically and immediately. Why? Because something happens that when we feel pain and hurt and discontent, what we end up doing is taking this out on the people who live in our homes. So for example, your husband, he goes to work, he has a terrible day. Who does he take it out on? The wife and the kids. Honey's had a bad day, wife's had a really bad day, it's been really difficult, frustrating at work or at home, wherever she's at. You come home, who gets the brunt of her frustration? Husband, kids. Kids go to school. They've had a terrible day. It's been a social nightmare. Things are very frustrating. They're overwhelmed and they're anxious. Who gets the brunt of their emotions? Mom, dad, brother, sister, right? Here's what we find. When we live in a community, whether it's a home community or otherwise, and our lives are hard and trauma enters in, we end up turning on each other by impulse and instinct. Let me say it this way. Oppressed communities will either turn on each other or stand with one another. And I don't, I, I don't want you to miss this. These churches in Turkey that Peter is writing to in the first century are going through turmoil and tumult like we have never seen before. Oppression is rising. Refugees are flowing in. The status quo is no longer there and their fleshly impulse is to give up on the church and to turn on each other. Do you see this? So here's what he says. Keep loving one another earnestly. Why? Because your temptation is going to be to give up when things are hard. Keep loving one another earnestly. And then he says, since love covers the multitude of sins, like what would be these multitudes of sins and, and irritancies that could possibly happen? Have you ever noticed that when you have had a hard day or a hard week, even the little things drive you a little bit nuts, right? Like you come home and you're frustrated and the TV's on too loud. And you're like, for the love of God, turn down the TV, right? It's like a TV, it's on normal volume, but everything to you is heightened in this moment, right? 
And so here's what you have to understand, that people who are under immense pressure and stress, they're irritated by a lot of things. And now you have different communities coming into one community. They have different doctrine and different practices. And, and they probably came from Rome where they had a different church and music style. And now they're in Turkey. And they're like, why are you doing the song that way? And here's the way we do it. There's a better way. And you can imagine the irritancy or the irritab- irritabilityness of these communities coming together and the stress of their status quo in Turkey now being turned upside down. So he says, lean into the church because your temptation is going to be to lean away and to turn in on each other. And it's hard. There's no doubt it's hard, but lean in. Step number two, joyfully open your home. When things are hard, we retreat to our home. We lock ourselves in because if you open up your home, what naturally follows? Your heart. Does it not? Here's what he says. This is to the refugees as well as to the people who lived in Turkey before the refugee crisis. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. (laughs) Why this command? Let's talk about the non-refugees for a moment. When your church community changes drastically, it can be frustrating. These people, you know, life was normal back when it was normal. They don't even speak our language. I don't even know what kind of food they eat. Their customs are all different. What's going on here? And you can see why there might be some grumbling and, and Peter's like, stop it. They didn't choose this. They, nobody would choose this. Have a tender heart. Keep loving one another earnestly. Open up your home because when you open up your home, your heart follows and your heart needs to be wide open to what these people are going through. For the refugee, you find yourself in a new place and you're going to be tempted to find a place to live in your home and kind of retreat and just be to yourself. And he says the same thing to them. Show hospitality without grumbling. Open up your home because where your home is opened, your heart will follow. Step number three, serve unmet needs. Are you hurting in a church? Serve unmet needs. He says in verse 10, as each has received a gift, Use it, use it to serve one another as God's stewards, of good stewards of God's varied grace. Here's what we know. For millennia, God has had this way of scattering his people, whether it's nations or church to church, allowing drama to happen so that the people of God can never get too comfortable in one place. He has been up to this for thousands of years. It has been a very normal practice of God. And apparently when he does this, what he's doing is he is amplifying the witness of the gospel and he's actually giving local communities an opportunity to learn how to love one another and show forth the glory of God. Here's, here's one of the things I know, okay? Uh, in the last 10 years in the Chicago suburbs, it's been crazy what has been going on in small churches, medium churches, and large churches. And there are spiritual refugees everywhere. Everywhere. It's gut-wrenching. It's difficult. It is frustrating. It is real. It is happening in local communities. Their status quo is gone. And God's like, I didn't really like your status quo. I wanted to do something different. And he's actually up to something very different in bringing people together who otherwise never would have been together in the past. Why did he allow it? I don't know. But he has always used hardship to scatter the people of God and to form new communities, almost to never allow us to get too comfortable. He's always up to this. It's crazy. It's his age-old mechanism. It's what he does. I don't know why he allows it, but he allows this. Verse 11, he says, whoever speaks 
as one who speaks the oracles of God. Some of you are teachers, and, and apparently, here's what happened. You got scattered. You got brought from Rome over to Turkey, and apparently they need, in, in Turkey, your teaching gift, your speaking gift, your encouragement gift, whatever your gift is. God had picked you, plucked you up out of Rome, dragged you against your will to Turkey. Now you're here. They need you. They need you. You have a speaking gift. Let's say you're in Turkey and you find all these people here and you're like, I don't know if I'm going to serve. I don't know if I'm going to be who God made me to be. These people need you. And what God's doing in Peter is bringing a community of refugees and a community of established Christians from different cultures and saying, figure it out. But keep loving one another earnestly. And I know you're going to be irritated. Love covers a multitude of sins. Open up your homes. Serve one another Whoever serves, you do this by the strength God supplies. I don't know why God plucked you up from where you were and brought you here, but here's what I do know. If this is where you land as your home church, God is not aimless at it. He has something for you, and apparently we need you, and apparently you need us, and God wants to do something as we come together. Let me say it this way. Those church, your home is not your home. Your skills are not your skills. Your stuff is not your stuff. When we came to Jesus, we said it's all yours And there's nothing like a refugee crisis where the needs become ever more apparent. And it's not just the refugees or the who need to be served, but apparently the community that you're coming into, they also need the gifts that you bring as well. Protocol number four, step number four, remember the reward. Why do we do all this? In order that in everything, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. If the spirit of God is in you, I want you to just recognize this. The spirit of God has the objective to bring glory to Jesus Christ, to make him look good, to amplify him, to give him fame. And the spirit of God in you wants to do that in you. And the longer you walk with Jesus, here's what you're going to find. There's something about giving God glory, making him look good, representing him well, being near to him. The more you grow in the Lord, that this is actually one of the greatest rewards. I just want to put this before you. One of the greatest rewards that you have is not just being near God, but seeing God glorified through your life. The human soul was designed to bring God glory. And when we're able to do that, it is one of the most beautiful, satisfying experiences because that's how we were made. I want to close with three so what's. Number one, never forget the reward for those who are self-controlled and sober-minded. Intimacy with God, glory to God. Uh, Remember your protocols for when you're being enticed by the world. Walk away, think clearly, remember the reward. Number two, I want to talk to spiritual refugees from other churches. I just want to look at you and say, welcome. Apparently, the Lord believes we need you. I know that it is gut-wrenching, and I don't know if all of you are going to land here. Uh, My greatest objective is not to have you land at Village Church. I want you to be wherever the Lord wants you to be. It's just that simple. Some of you may be here for a season. Some of you may be here indefinitely. Whatever it is, I just want to look at you and say, we're so glad to have you. Our heart is broken over what you've had to go through. But I'm looking at this room, and I think 99% of us in this room weren't here when it started, which means the vast majority of us came from some circumstance where we had to leave one place and come here, or some of us had the privilege of coming to Christ, and this is the first church we've ever had. 
But the vast majority of us in this room understand what it means to be hurt, understands what it means to be a spiritual refugee and not have a church home. And I just want to encourage you, God has made you to lean into the local church. I also understand the temptation to write off the church because the church hurt you. We don't dis put marriage out because you saw a bad marriage or had a bad marriage. The local church is good. Jesus made it and he loves it. And I want to encourage you to lean into it in this season. Lean in. Remember your protocols. Lean in. Joyfully open your heart and your home. Serve unmet needs and remember the reward. God's going to get a lot of glory in this. Finally, number three, village churchers who have been here a while. The Lord is up to something. The last 10 years for every church I know have been crazy. The next 10 years are going to be more so. And so I don't know what the next 10 years holds, but I want to look at Village Church and just say, personally, I am incredibly proud to be the pastor of the Village Church and the way you have handled and cared for the many hundreds of souls who have been legitimately broken and hurt and felt like spiritual refugees I could not be more proud, and you guys have been an incredible encouragement to me and light, and I know that many people have come through this church, and they've been able to experience healing. You've opened up your homes. You have served. You've been incredibly gracious, and I want to just tell you, keep loving one another earnestly, because for the next 10 years, we're going to watch more and more hurt and broken people walk through our doors, and we have the privilege to steward them and to love them and to encourage them and to meet them where they're at. Open your home, open your heart to them, serve them, and help them do the same. At the cross, I don't care where you're from, what church you got saved in, what church you go to now, you might be visiting with family and friends or just checking us out for one Sunday. Um, Whether you're an actual refugee, which there are some in the room, whether you're a spiritual refugee, or whether or not you've been at Village Church since you were born, which some of you have, one thing binds us together and that is faith in Jesus. It is the cross that unites us. We are bound together by the same spirit that is in each one of us through faith in Jesus Christ. So in just a moment, we're going to celebrate communion. I want you to remember in this time that this is what God is up to. God is up to taking people from all different cultures and languages and nations and backgrounds and even centuries and bringing us together as one people who have placed our faith in Jesus and have him in common. If you have never been with us in communion, um, it's very simple. If you've trusted in Christ, I don't care where you go to church, we want to celebrate communion with you. If you have never trusted in Christ um, and you've never placed your faith in him, you're not ready to do that yet. Um, When the elements come by, we want to just ask, would you just let the elements pass and not partake of them? I want to tell you why. Because as believers, when we partake of these elements, we're saying big things. We're saying that we believe Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We're saying we believe in a literal resurrection. We're saying we believe Jesus is coming back again. We're saying that we believe salvation is not for good people or people who work hard enough, but it's only by faith in Jesus Christ. There's some big declarations that we're making when we partake of these elements. It might just be a little piece of bread and some grape juice, but we're declaring big eternal spiritual realities that these are deep convictions of ours. 
If today is the day that you want to place your faith in Jesus, I could not encourage you to do that sooner. I think it'll be the greatest decision you ever make in your entire life. And Jesus is waiting to offer you forgiveness and his spirit and his people. And he's offering himself to you through faith in Jesus. And if that's a decision you want to make today, let me just tell you, you don't get saved because you're good. You don't get saved because your parents are Christians and you don't get saved and forgiven because you're here. You get saved because you personally trust in Christ and ask him to forgive you of your sins. And so I just want to encourage you, if that is a decision you want to make today, I know it might be weird to your spouse or to your kids or to your parents or to your community. I know you may not understand all the implications of it, but I'm telling you, you will never, ever regret coming to Jesus on his terms and having him forgive you of your sins and give you his spirit and save you. Uh, The power and the life that come with that are second to none. So we're going to have a moment of silence here. It's an opportunity for you just to reflect, to be grateful, remember what God's done for us. And then when that's done, I'm going to pray. We're going to sing together as the elements are passed. We just hold on to them to the end, and then we'll partake together. Let's have a time of silence together.